We're together. Genesis 47 is our Old Testament text. Genesis 47, 13 through 31. This is the word of the Lord. Now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us bread, for why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Then Joseph said, Give your livestock, and I will give you bread for your livestock if the money is gone. So they brought their livestock to Joseph, and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds, and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. When that year had ended, they came to him the next year and said to him, We will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. My Lord also has our herds of livestock. There is nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread. And we in our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. Then Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh. For every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. And as for the people, he moved them into the cities from one end of the borders of Egypt to the other end. Only the land of the priests he did not buy. For the priests had rations allotted to them by Pharaoh, and they ate their rations which Pharaoh gave them. Therefore they did not sell their lands. Then Joseph said to the people, Indeed, I have bought you and your land this day for Pharaoh. Look, here is seed for you, and you shall sow the land, and it shall come to pass in the harvest, that you shall give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food. For those of your households, it is food for your little ones. So they said, You have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. And Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth, except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt seventeen years. So the length of Jacob's life was one hundred and forty-seven years. When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, Now, if I have found favor in your sight, Please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt 
and bury me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Then he said, Swear to me. And he swore to him. So Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. Our New Testament text, Hebrews 11, 8 through 22. It's wonderful the way that God illuminates his own word uh, from one passage to the other. And Hebrews 11 in particular shines a, a bright light on so much of the story of Abraham, Isaac, and, and Jacob. That's what we read now. Hebrews 11, verses 8 through 22. God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed, and she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful, who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, And Isaac your seed shall be called, concluding that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. By faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. By faith, Jacob, when he was dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph and worshipped, leaning on the top of his staff. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray and ask his blessing on it. Almighty God, we ask you for such deeper fellowship of the Holy Spirit who speaks in the blessed Scriptures, that when we open them, we may perceive the Spirit's mind in what we hear read and preached, and immediately hear in Your Word, Your own voice to us. We ask for a quicker understanding in spiritual things. 
for more desire to understand, a fuller perception of your promise. Make us teachable. And make us to love the one who teaches us, even you, our God. We pray this in our Savior's name. Amen. You can boil the book of Genesis down to three promises. Um, If you're ever on an elevator and someone says, 30 seconds, go, what's Genesis about? Here you go, three promises to summarize summarize, uh, Genesis for you. Promise number one, God makes a great nation for himself. He promises to make a great nation that will be his own people. Um, That's the first. The second, he promises to make that nation to be a blessing to the whole world. Through this great nation he's going to make, he promises that he's going to send out blessing all over the all over the earth. And in promise number three, he promises to give that nation a homeland where he will live with them forever. These promises really form the backbone that the whole book of Genesis is connected to and is based off of. They're there even before Abraham comes onto the scene, actually. We we recognize them probably, especially picking up with Abraham, but they're there before Abraham. They're actually there before the fall into sin as well. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 where God creates Adam and Eve and places them in the garden and blesses them. What, is, what does he do? He, he creates a people for himself, a man and a woman. And he says, be fruitful and multiply. Become a great nation. Fill the earth and subdue it. Fill it with image bearers and God worshipers who will spread my glory over this this whole world. He gives them a land, a place to live with him, to have fellowship with him, a temple, garden, dwelling place, the Garden of Eden where where he is with them. And he he commands them to be a blessing to the whole world. So there, even before the fall, you've got God making a nation, God, God blessing them and making them to be a blessing to the whole world and God giving them a homeland with himself. Then, of course, Genesis 3 happens. The brakes get slammed on. Everything comes to a screeching halt uh, as, as the world is hurled into sin and misery by Adam and Eve's choice to rebel against God. We're not going to be your image bearers. We're not going to fill the earth with your glory. We'll fill it with our glory. We'll do our own thing, be our own nation, do this our own, do this our own way. We don't need your blessing. Uh, we'll be fine on our own. But then God gives them a promise, doesn't he? The promise of a child. The promise of one who will undo the effects of the sin and, and, and the fall and, and, and will, will bring the blessing of salvation from God. Again, a blessing even better than Eden that can't be taken away. So God gives that that little seed of a promise in Genesis chapter 3. My blessing is going to come back. And then it grows, it blossoms into into a flower in Genesis chapter 12, where God calls to Abraham and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to make you a blessing to the whole world. And I'm going to give you a homeland. And then those three promises from there on form the the, the drama of, of, of the book of Genesis. Uh, will God keep his word to the, each of these promises that he's made? Right, there's Abraham and his wife, and they can't have a child. 
and they don't seem to possess this land, and they don't seem to be blessing many people at all. But will God keep his promises? And then as the book of Genesis unfolds, we see that his chosen people are still very sinful. Will God, will God keep giving grace and, and keep, keep the promise that he made to, to, to outmatch the threats of, of the sin of his own people and the sin of the world around them that threatens to swallow them up? And that's the, that's the story of Genesis. And as we come to Genesis 47 now, where we are tonight, we're coming towards the end of this first, this first book of the Bible, this first section of the story. And so the Holy Spirit, inspiring Moses, the secondary author, wants to show us where do we stand with these three promises which have formed the drama of the story. Has God done what he said he would do? Has he proved himself faithful and and trustworthy. What, what, what's next? What are we looking for God to do next in the story? Um, has God kept his word in the past? Will he continue to keep his word? That's, the, that's what Genesis 47 is asking and answering. And, and it shows us Jacob sort of right in the middle of these promises that God has made. Where we, Jacob can look behind him and he can see God did that. He did that. He, he kept that promise. He kept that promise. He kept that promise. And yet he can also look forward and say there's so much more that God still has to do. We're still, we're still just 70 people. We're, we're, we're growing, yes, we're growing, but, but we're not yet all that we will be. We're not yet home in our homeland. And so this chapter ends with Jacob, with his eyes on that heavenly homeland, pressing toward the mark, seeking a better country, as, as Hebrews put it. That makes this chapter such a relevant chapter for us because we stand in an almost perfect analogy to where Jacob stands in Genesis 47. We can look at what God has done. We can look at the wonderful things he's done for us in Christ and how he's made this people, his church, more numerous than the stars of heaven um, and how he's, he's brought the blessing of salvation to the world through Christ. But also, like Jacob, we're not home. There's still more to come. There's more that Christ will do to fulfill his, his word. And this, this passage then calls us to faith. Like so much of the book of Genesis, calls us to trust God's promises that he's made, that the God who has begun to bless us will finish blessing us, that every blessing he's promised he'll bring to fruition in our Lord Jesus. We'll look at this under, under three, three points. Number one is a blessing to the nations. This is verses 13 through 26. This is the first of the three promises. We see all three promises uh, here in chapter 47. Blessing to the nations, number one. Uh, verse 13, picking up. We read that the famine uh, is now more severe than ever. We're told that all the land from Canaan to Egypt, that's a big swath of territory, is, is struck with, with famine. They're running out of food. No bread left. They go to the grocery store, nothing on the shelves. Um, but Joseph has food. Joseph, because of the wisdom God gave him and the, the revelations God gave him, Joseph has been storing up seven years' worth of, of an abundant harvest year after year in Egypt, and he's got plenty to give. But the people have less and less to buy it with. And we read this, that uh, the Egyptians pay up their money, no food, Joseph has food. You've got money. What are you going to do? Well, they pay up. Um, a year goes by. They, they run out of money. Um, 
So what does he do next? Well, they give him, they give him their livestock. Um, another year goes by, they're out of livestock to give him. What do they give him for food now? Take our property. Take us. We'll be your servants. And all of this uh, is brought for, uh, for an exchange for, uh, for, for the food that they need to survive. Can you imagine the uproar that would happen if something like this happened here uh, today? If, if there was this famine and, and, the, and the government said, well, keep paying up, nothing to give, well, we'll take your property. Uh, right? right? There would be a complete uh, rebellion against that, wouldn't there? Uh, this, is, this, is, this, is, uh, uh, this doesn't seem kind to us. Shouldn't Joseph just give them the food? Wouldn't it be gracious and loving for him to do so? Well, let's not measure him by 21st century standards of, of what's right and, and fair. Um, if you measure him by the culture of his time, what he's doing is just, fair, and even gracious uh, as, as, he, as he sells these, the, the food to the Egyptians. Um, it, w- it was fair. In that culture, if you had something to give, you gave it. If you needed something and you had anything that you could do to purchase it yourself, that's what you were expected to do. You, you, you had to pay your, your own way, even if you had to sell yourself into temporary slavery. Um, that was what was expected to do. Um, and, and so no one is looking at what Joseph is doing. No one in Egypt is saying, this isn't fair, Joseph. They accept it. Of course he's doing what he needs to do. Um, they see that he's fulfilling his obligation to uh, be a good second-in-command for Pharaoh. He's, he's managing the situation well for Pharaoh. He's, he's being fair to the people, doing what he's supposed to do by them, doing right by them. Um, so he's fair. He's also being gracious. Verses 23 to 24 tell us that uh, he sets up this one-fifth uh, tax rate. That for, from now on, going forward, the Egyptians will have to pay one-fifth of all their produce to Pharaoh. That seems pretty high to us. Um, but uh, compared with their culture, with tax rates in other places up to 40%, it's pretty gracious. Only have to give a fifth. Um, so he's, he's being gracious by the standards of his day. And the Egyptians themselves see him as gracious and see him as, as life-saving. They're not complaining about this. They say in verse 25, you have saved our lives. That's it for them. You've saved our lives. We'll gladly do this because of what you've done for us. Let us find favor in your sight, uh, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So that, that's what happens in the first section here of chapter 47. Um, what do we make of it? What are we supposed to, how, how are we supposed to understand this? Um, what's happening here is the fulfillment of God's promise to bring blessing. God's promise, I will make you a blessing. That's, that's what's being fulfilled here. Uh, Genesis chapter 12, God's first words to Abraham. Coming to Abraham uh, by sovereign grace, completely out of the blue, Abraham, he says, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That, that, that's the promise that's driving Genesis 47, and that's the promise that's, that's lying behind the, the, what's happening here. What has Pharaoh done for Joseph? He's honored him, hasn't he? He's, he's, he's treated Joseph well. He's raised him up. He's honored him, and he's blessed him. What, is Joseph, uh, what has Pharaoh done for, for, for Jacob? When Jacob came, he, he honored him, respected him, and, and, and treated him well. What was God's promise? 
one who blesses you, I will bless. Pharaoh's blessed. The chosen family of God. And so what is God doing? He's keeping his promise. He's, he, he's blessing Pharaoh. He's, he's providing wealth for Egypt and for Pharaoh. God is blessing Egypt, and, and through Egypt, all the families of the earth who are coming to get the food here, providing life-saving food through Joseph's wisdom. More than this, though, um, what's happening here is a, is a fulfillment of, of an older promise. Because behind the promise to Abraham to bring blessing to the sinful world lies God's promise to Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15. We mentioned this earlier. This is the seed from which the whole Bible grows. Um, Genesis 3.15, where God promised a child who would crush the serpent's head. A child who would undo what the fall had done. But what did the fall do? It brought God's curse. What's the curse? Thorns and thistles. Death. Famine. What is God doing through Joseph? He's reversing effects of the curse. The, the famine is raging. Effects of the curse, raging, right? And, and what is God doing through his chosen representative that he's raised up? He's providing life, food, bread, blessing in the midst of that curse. God himself, by his grace, overcoming the effects of the curse by pouring out through Joseph life-giving blessing. Joseph is like Noah's Ark. Right in the midst of this famine. And God is saying, here's a way of salvation. Come in. Here, here it is. Here's life. Here's a blessing in the midst of, of, of curse. Uh, come to Joseph and receive life in place of death. That, that's what's happening. God extending his, his blessing here through Joseph, overcoming the curse. And of course, what's happening here, very clearly, points us forward to our Lord Jesus Christ. He's like Joseph, but but so much more than Joseph, right? Joseph brings bread in a time of famine. Jesus comes, and the famine is worse, and the blessing he gives is better, right? The famine is the famine of, of our sin, the wrath of God, and what Jesus is dealing with is not just one symptom of the curse, like Joseph was, the famine, but Jesus is dealing with, with the ultimate cause. He's dealing with the sin that underlies the, the curse, He's restoring our relationship with, with God. And so when Jesus says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread I will give for the life of the world is my, is my flesh. When Jesus says that, he's saying, I have come to give eternal life. Not just a mouthful to survive a few more days, but, but life that never ends. The rich blessing of heaven come down to a sinful world. There's another point here, isn't there, comparing Joseph with Christ to come. And that's that while there's similarities, there's also a difference. Joseph deals shrewdly, wisely, graciously, but somewhat strictly as he sells the bread. But not our Lord Jesus Christ. But he comes and he says, come, take, and eat, buy without money, without price. Receive, just look by faith and I'll give you the bread, uh, which you eat. You will never hunger again. Two points of application to draw from this, brothers and sisters, from this first, from this first heading. Uh, number one, if God has provided a son who is the only source of life and blessing for the world, then why would you look for life and blessing anywhere else? We're living in a famine, a famine of sin and misery, 
And there's only one source for the life-giving blessing of God that we need. And Christ has it. All these other things that we try to find life from don't give the kind of life we need. Only the life that is found in Jesus Christ brings the lasting blessing of God. So don't, don't seek to satisfy your hunger anywhere else but in, but in Christ. And then second, if, if you've received this from him, and you're living in a famine-stricken world that needs the life-giving bread of heaven, tell others about it. Invite them to come and eat. Taste and see that Christ himself, the bread of heaven, is, is good. All right, that's, that's the first thing. The first thing we see, um, uh, uh, a nation that is a blessing. The second is a people's multiplication. Verse 27, just one verse for this point. Uh, a people's multiplication. Um, verse 27 says, So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen, and they had possessions there, and grew and multiplied exceedingly. Interesting to note, isn't it, that it says they had possessions there? What happened to the possessions of the Egyptians? They had to trade them for bread, but Israel is Joseph's own family. And it does not seem that they had to sell their possessions to get grain. It doesn't seem that they had to sell their land. They're in the land of Goshen. It's theirs. They're, they're allowed to stay there. They're not selling themselves as, as servants and slaves to Pharaoh. Um, later, another Pharaoh will come along who didn't know Joseph, who will enslave them. But, but at, this point, um, at this point, it doesn't seem like they're being treated the same way. God is singling them out for blessing providing for them. But why is he doing it? Well, he's doing it to grow them. Uh, the rest of the verse goes on to say that, that they multiplied exceedingly. They, they, they grew and they multiplied exceedingly. God is rapidly growing them into this, this, this great, large nation, blessing them with children and, and grandchildren. What's going on? God's promise. I'll make you a great nation. It's happening right here in verse 27. All those years ago, when God went to Abraham, brought him out of his tent on that pitch black night and said, look up at the stars. And all the stars there in the sky, the thousands of thousands of stars, he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. That's the promise that God gave generations before. Abraham gets one son. He gets two grandsons. Countless as the stars. He gets 12 great-grandsons, a little better. But now, Genesis 47, 27, they grew. They multiplied exceedingly. In God's time, it's happening. It's, it's beginning. This, this generation, this next generation, is, is flourishing and growing and is being fruitful. And God is giving them this just exponential growth. Um, what's, what's happening here is that God, as he fulfills this, is not just fulfilling the promise to Abraham, as we've been seeing, but we need to trace, trace the line further back, right? We, we trace the, the line from Genesis 47 to Genesis 12 and God's promise to Abraham there. Trace the line a little further back, though, all the way back again to the first chapters of, of Genesis. Genesis 1.28, where God creates Adam and Eve in his image and then commands them to fill the earth Right? What, is, what does he say? God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful 
and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Before the fall into sin, God wants this to grow into a nation. He wants this to be a great nation, filling the whole world and worshiping Him and carrying out His kingship. This command to Adam and Eve is then transformed into a blessing that God places on Abraham. So God, God gives that command to Adam and Eve, you be fruitful and multiply. What does He say to Abraham? I will make you a great nation. The command before the fall turns into a promise after the fall. God says, that command that I gave, now I myself will see it through. I will, I will make sure it happens. This is the covenant of grace now. God, is, God himself is going to fulfill uh, the command that he gave. This doesn't mean, though, that Abraham's descendants don't have a role to play. In Genesis 35, verse 11, God says to Jacob, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation... And a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. So it's, it's both in the covenant of grace. God says, I will make you a great nation, promise, and be fruitful and multiply, command, both at the same time. And what's happening in Genesis 47, 27 is, is both. They're being obedient, trusting his word, and they're multiplying. And God is being faithful to his word and blessing them to grow them into a great nation. The question is, what happens when Christ comes? Does all this just get put to a stop? The nation of Israel rejects its Messiah by and large, and, and that, that's it? What happens to this promise of a great nation? Well, no, not at all. It doesn't come to a stop. It's actually expanded. It grows, doesn't it? Because in Christ, the promise to be a great nation goes out to all the nations of the earth. God, God said, I'm going to bring in all the Gentiles to be part of this, this nation as well. Uh, Romans 9, verses 6 through 8 tells us, Not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. So God is expanding the promise in Christ and the command to be fruitful and multiply. That command is on us, too. The Great Commission, isn't it? Jesus' words, Great Commission, promise and command to be fruitful and multiply. Spiritually, disciples, image bearers of the new man, our Lord Jesus Christ, going out to the whole world. Our Lord Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. It's the new creation mandate. God's saying, go make image bearers, share the gospel, teach about Christ, fill the world, multiply and be fruitful, spiritually fruitful for my sake. And it's a promise. Jesus says, I'm with you always to the end of the age. I'll carry you along. I'll see that it's done. I will build my church. This is the second thing we see, a people's multiplication. And then third, and finally, a homeland in the heavens. So we've seen the first two promises, right? Promise number one, 
uh, that God would make his people a blessing, promise number two, he'd multiply them, make them a great nation, promise number three, our third point here, a homeland in the heavens. God promises a homeland to his people. As the chapter comes to its end, verses 28 through 31, we see Jacob. He's 147 years old, um, getting ready to die. He knows it's just about his time to die, but there's one more thing he needs to do. There's, there's, he's, he's not quite ready. Right? There's one more thing he needs to take care of uh, but before, he can, before he can let go. He calls his son Joseph, and he makes him come and, and promise, promise that he will take his body back to Canaan after he dies. He says, please, do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burial place. Joseph says, I'll, I'll do I'll do it. Jacob says, no, promise me. Swear an oath, a solemn oath that you will do this. And, and Jacob does. And then uh, Joseph, Joseph does. And then Jacob bows himself on the end of his bed. You can tell how important this is to, jo- to Jacob. He cannot rest until he's been promised by his son that his body will be carried back to the promised land. He makes Jacob swear it as, a, as an oath, and then once it's done, he bows his head on the end of his, the end of his bed in worship of God, as Hebrews tells us, we read earlier, and in rest, right, rest. He's at peace, knowing my last wishes will be carried out. Why is this important? It's important because of God's promise of a homeland. Um, Jacob's dying far from the promised land. Abraham, Isaac, they're buried back home in in the promised land, but he's going to die far away from that promised land. He's never going to see it again in his earthly life. And he knows uh, that that beyond it, there's a promise of a heavenly inheritance, a a, a homeland that the promised land was a nice picture of, but he knows that beyond it, there's something better, a heavenly promised land, and that's what he's been seeking. That's what Abraham was looking for, and Isaac too, and that's what he's been, been seeking for as well. Not just to get back to Canaan and to have that place, but, but to go to the heavenly homeland. The wonderful words we read from Hebrews 11. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear they are seeking a homeland. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. So even at the end of his life, Jacob's faith is leaning forward with anticipation for what God is still going to do according to his promise. And once he knows that his body will be carried home, he he can rest. He can die in faith that he's going home. Why does it matter so much, though, that his body be buried there? Making sure that his body is buried in Canaan is an act of faith for him. Expressing his faith that God is going to raise up his body. That his body is going to be cared for by God himself, even in death. The Catechism says that uh, even in death, our bodies are still united to Christ. Our souls go immediately to be with him in glory and are united to him, but he doesn't forget our body. Even in our death, he cares for them. And I think Jacob is saying, God is going to carry me through death. And even when my bones lie buried in the earthly promised land, one day they'll be raised up in new life. Christ himself will come and, and wake me up and bring me into the heavenly, heavenly promised land. 
Uh, and loved ones, that is to be our mindset, desiring that heavenly homeland. Here we stand, like, like Jacob, right? we can look back, all that Christ has done for us, all the promises that God has fulfilled, but, but so much more to come. A heavenly homeland ahead of us, and, and we need to be yearning for that and longing for that and restless until we find our rest there with our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would turn our affections heavenward, that you'd help us to trust the promises that you've made in your word. Lord, we pray that you would do this all for Christ's sake and shape us into his image by his grace and for his glory. We pray it in our Savior's name. Amen.